Thank you so much for bringing all of us here tonight, and thank you for your word and how much depth and richness is found in it. I pray for your spirit to be moving and active tonight as we study. I pray that during our discussion groups, you would be revealing things to us, and I just pray that we would all leave here feeling like we have encountered truth and we have been changed and moved by you in some way. So um, just let your spirit be at work and prepare all of us for what you want us to take from this time. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are covering a lot of ground. Each week we're kind of covering bigger and bigger chunks because this is a very long book. And so I know at first we were able to kind of read most of it, but we're kind of getting to that point now where we're going to have to not do that so much anymore. But don't worry if you weren't able to study at all or get through all of it. I am going to be summarizing it as we go. So even though we're not able to read it verse by verse, we are going to be telling you everything that happened. So you're not going to miss anything. <clears throat> so tonight we are covering... Saul's downfall and the beginning of David's rise. So last week, Madison kind of walked us through um, Saul's anointing as king. We saw Israel reject God as king, and Saul um, is who God gave them. And he started off really promising. He was able to prove himself in battle and help bring victory to Israel. But as we're about to see, that only two years into his reign, he is not going to be looking so promising anymore. And a lot of times, his actions are going to speak for themselves. We're going to be able to see what's happening by looking at these isolated stories um, or isolated characters, and we can see a lot of what the author's trying to tell us by looking at just that thing. But the way we're really going to kind of see what the author or authors is trying to tell us is by contrasting his actions or different situations with other actions or other situations. Um, contrasting is a thing that is so revealing because a lot of times, like we've said, when we look at these stories in isolation, things like David and Goliath, which we're going to be covering tonight, we can get a lot from that story by itself, but we can get so much more when we see it in the bigger context. When we start contrasting different things that have happened, it kind of helps us to reach the depth a little bit better of what the author or authors are trying to actually communicate to us. So we're going to be doing a lot of that tonight. So let's start with getting a picture of where Saul's leadership has gotten Israel just two years into his reign. We're going to start in chapter 13. We read that just two years into his kingship, he has kind of built his army, and he takes 3,000 men. So 2,000 of these men are with himself, and 1,000 are with his son, Jonathan. Now, at this point in the story, when we've just kind of established, okay, God is, uh, Saul has proven himself as king. He has kind of brought this great victory. We would expect to hear of some bigger and greater victories led by Israel's new king. And we do start off this chapter hearing of a victory, but it's not exactly led by Saul. It's led by his son, Jonathan. And even though Saul wasn't even present at the battle, he blows a trumpet throughout the land, and everybody hears that Saul defeated the Philistines. Which in one sense, yeah, it's true, because Saul is the king, so he can claim some credit for any victory that happens under his kingship. This was his people that he leads and represents, so he can claim that as his victory. But as the reader, we do start off this chapter with a little bit of unease about, well, wait a minute, like, why wasn't Saul the one leading out in this victory? He's their new king. He should be doing these great things for them, okay? Um, and so we kind of are feeling a little bit troubled by that. Then he calls the people to come and join them in battle after this victory, and people start to come, and they join him, but then they see, oh, wow, like the Philistines have a huge advantage over us. They probably had more people, better weapons, um, and they all begin to run and hide. And the few who do remain with Saul are described as trembling. So then these trembling people are waiting for the next battle, and Samuel tells Saul, hey, you're going to wait for seven days, 
and then I'm going to come and we're going to give a burnt offering to the Lord, okay? Now, a little bit of context. At this time, when there was going to be some sort of battle, if they were going to initiate a battle, then you would always be seeking the guidance of the Lord first. So there would always be a burnt offering, and that purpose of that burnt offering was to hear from God, to get direction from God as to what you are to do. And the way that you get that direction of God is through the prophets. So people start running, they're hiding, they're scared. And on the seventh day, Saul decides to go ahead and do the burnt offering, even though Samuel is not there yet, because he's thinking, wow, it's the seventh day. He's not coming and people are leaving. He's kind of getting a little bit panicked. Um, So then we read in verse 13 what happens. I'm going to go ahead and read this verse. It says, and Samuel said to Saul, when Samuel does arrive, he says, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So I don't know about you, but when I first read this, I really struggled with it. The first several times that I read this, I struggled so much because I couldn't understand why was what Saul did so bad. I mean, we kind of have the, the, the you know, privilege of knowing things that happen later. And so I know that later on, David does some pretty horrible things like adultery and murder. And he's described as a man after God's own heart, and he doesn't have the kingdom taken from him for those things. And so it just feels like why is such a harsh punishment given to Saul for something like doing the sacrifice a little bit early when he seems to have a noble intention of wanting God's favor? So let's unpack this for a minute and see why this really was so bad. First, I want to remind you guys that Samuel was the prophet, which means that he was the mouthpiece of God. And it's easy for us to to forget how important that that was. So not only was he the one who told Saul, wait until I arrive, which means that in effect, God was telling Saul, wait for Samuel to arrive. And Saul just disregarded that instruction. He did not obey. So when he has this burnt offering early, he is disobeying God's instructions. Okay, does that make sense? Now, Samuel was supposed to be present at that burnt offering, but more importantly, at that burnt offering, he again was the mouthpiece of God. So he would have given instructions to Saul from God for how to proceed in this war. So when Saul rushes the burnt offering and does it without Samuel, he's not just making a choice to do an offering without Samuel. He is basically deciding that this external ritual was more important than its purpose, which was actually hearing from God and hearing God's direction and guidance. So my favorite commentator, he worded it this way. He said, Samuel was the bearer of Yahweh's word and Saul's task was to wait for it. Instead, he proceeded without it. So for Saul, sacrificial ritual was essential, but prophetic direction was dispensable. And that's a little bit more serious when you start to put it that way. I also want to point out that this place that they were at, Gilgal, it was pretty isolated. And it was situated in such a way that, from what I read, it was very unlikely to actually be attacked by the Philistines or anybody else. It was a pretty safe place to assemble and to get ready for battle without worrying about an attack. So Saul's claim that he was worried that the Philistines were going to come and rush upon them, so he forced himself and rushed the sacrifice, well, that wasn't entirely true. They weren't really at risk of being attacked in this location. Now, we talked about how we're going to be contrasting a lot tonight. I want you to contrast what is happening here with what happened back in chapter 7. 
if you'll remember, God had just done all of his amazing things where his ark had been captured. He brought his ark miraculously back to his people after basically defeating the Philistines all by himself. Do you remember what happened at the end of all of that? Let's see. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. I just rushed ahead of myself. Okay, we're contrasting this with something else. I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm so excited about what we're talking about tonight. So back in 7, that chapter, Samuel led all of the people to repent, okay? So they had all basically um, kind, kind of as a nation repented. And we saw that when that happened, that they had a sacrifice. They had a burnt offering. During that burnt offering, they did not rush through that sacrifice. And we read that during that burnt offering, the Philistines actually were rushing upon them. Do you remember that? So we hear that the Philistines were rushing upon them. They did not rush that sacrifice, but they continued to cry out to God to save them. Now, that is a very different picture than what we are seeing here, okay? So Saul is rushing a sacrifice without waiting for Samuel to arrive, like he was instructed, with very little chance that the Philistines were actually going to attack there at all. So when we, attack, when we kind of contrast these two situations, we see more clearly that Saul's heart is not reflecting the heart that they had back in chapter 7, that heart that really depended on God and his guidance and direction, where they were crying out to him to save them when they're attacking. Saul is not reflecting that heart. We've seen a big shift away from where they were at when they were in a good position with the Lord. And finally, in this situation, we see that Samuel does arrive before the sacrifice is over, which indicates that, yeah, he did arrive before the end of that seventh day or before the end of that time. So Saul's claim that he didn't arrive in the appointed time is kind of false as well. So what we're seeing here is we're not seeing a leader who's devoted to God or dependent on God's guidance and direction. We're seeing someone who's taking shortcuts. We're seeing somebody who sees God's direction as dispensable. They're lying. They're shifting blame in order to save face. So it's no wonder that through Samuel that God tells him that he has sought another one to be king, and Saul's line is no longer going to have claim to the throne. So hopefully that helps you understand why this really was a bigger deal than what we really see, see at first glance. So then at the end of chapter 13, we're given a picture of just where Saul's leadership has gotten them. So we see at the end of this chapter, he only has 600 men still with him because everybody else is hiding in caves and they're afraid. And then we see that the enemy, the Philistines, have been able to gain a lot of ground because of this. They've headed lots of different directions. They kind of named several cities that the Philistines were going to, okay? And so they have gained control of all of Israel's weapons on top of this because they are so infiltrated in their land. And that has left all of Israel to fight with farming tools. So we're going to do another contrast, okay? This is the one that I was kind of jumping ahead to because I thought it was so good. Um, remember back in week three how God proved his ability to conquer and protect when he defeated that Philistine God, and then he brought those plagues, he brought the ark back. What happened at the end of all that? Well, we saw that it told us specifically God had restored several cities back to Israel, okay? There were a lot of cities that Israel, that the Philistines had taken from Israel, and God restored a lot of those cities. But now, though, in just less than two years of Saul's rule, we see that the Philistines are in Israel's cities, in Israel territory, and they have raiders going in every direction. Like, I didn't have you guys look this up on the map or anything, but when it says all the places that the raiders were going, one of those places was north, one of those was west, one was southeast. So it gives this picture that the Philistines are going in every direction throughout Israel, and they have control over all of it. Okay? So Saul had completely reversed their position with the Philistines. He had undone all of the good that God had done for Israel in regards to the Philistines. So when God was their king, 
their lands were restored that the Philistines had taken. But now with Saul as king, he had reversed it all, and they were losing ground. So there's a big contrast there with where these two leaderships are getting them. Okay, so we've been, chapter 14, we're going to begin again with Jonathan. We already saw in the last chapter, Jonathan had led them in one victory while Saul was somewhere else. Now Jonathan is going to do it again with even more impossible odds. So we see Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree. And yes, that is supposed to make us think, huh, is he just sitting idly by, like not doing anything? Yeah, that's basically what it's supposed to make us think about, okay? Most of Israel's soldiers at this point are hiding in caves. But Jonathan steps up, and he demonstrates bravery and leadership, and he acts on behalf of the people. And at the same time, he shows that he has really deep faith in God as his leader and his military strength. So how does he do this? What does he do? Well, Jonathan decides to take action, and he crosses over to where a garrison of the Philistines were. And so there was like about 20 Philistines, and they were, to get to them, you had to kind of go up a really kind of unclimbable area. And so it was kind of, um, they would have never expected somebody to come from this direction that Jonathan came. He doesn't do this because he's ambitious. He doesn't do this because he's trying to make a name for himself, but he does it because verse 6 tells us that he has faith in God, and he knows that. The Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. So Jonathan asks for a sign from the Lord because, again, he knows that what he's about to do is only possible if he has the Lord's favor. And Jonathan's not rash, and he's not foolish. He just trusts that God is a God who brings victory despite any odds, and he only wants to act if he's acting on God's guidance. Very different than what we just saw with Saul, right? Um, We see in the text that God does give him the sign that he asks for. So Jonathan and his armor bearer, with nobody else helping them, they go and they take on and they defeat these 20 Philistine men. Now at this point, because of like the climate of what had been going on between these two armies, this was such a strong victory that people heard about it on both sides. We see that the Philistines were trembling at this kind of great show of strength. And then Saul and his men, they're just kind of confused and trying to figure out what happened. They're like, who achieved this victory? Like, we're all still sitting over here under the pomegranate tree. We don't know what happened. And so then we see a chain reaction come from Jonathan's actions. So this chain reaction, it starts with Jonathan, who under the leadership and guidance from God, he steps out into battle with only his armor bearer, and he defeats 20 Philistines. Then... The Philistines, we see, are scared and trembling. Then the Lord steps in and adds to this. He causes the earth to quake, which creates even more fear among the Philistines. And then we finally see Saul. But what's Saul doing? Well, he's trying to figure out what happened. Like, he's kind of trying to, he doesn't have Samuel anymore. He doesn't have, Samuel is not there with him at this point. So he's having to look to Ahijah, or Ahijah, I don't know how to say that name. And the the text gives us this kind of random genealogy there to let us know that this priest that he is looking to is from the rejected priestly line. It's one of Eli's descendants, okay? And so that genealogy is there to let us know that Saul is kind of having to turn to the rejected priestly line because Samuel is not there with him at this time, okay? So uh, um, then the commotion in the camp of the Philistine increases, and finally, Saul either recognizes the opportunity before him, or maybe he's just finally forced into action, and he gathers his men, and he steps into battle. This then gives everybody who had been hiding in caves the courage to come out and fight, and they're able to defeat the Philistine. Now, I ask you in the homework to think about Saul's place in that chain reaction and Jonathan's place in that chain reaction. Because remember, Saul was supposed to be their king, this king that they had asked for and begged for. 
he was supposed to be the one leading them and protecting them and bringing them victory over their enemy. So he should have been at the top of that chain reaction. But instead, look at how much had to happen for him to even jump in at all. So like when I read that story, I'm like, man, if I was alive back then, I'd want to be standing behind Jonathan, not Saul. Jonathan seems to be the natural leader here. And it's funny, like another little contrast is that Samuel gave us a picture of a man who was seeking God, but his sons didn't. And Saul is starting to give us a picture of a man who didn't really seek God, but whose son does. And it's kind of this tragedy underlying all of this, because even though Jonathan is showing us more and more, and he'll continue to show us, that he has all the makings of a great king, but he's never going to get to be one because of what Saul has done. Because if you remember, in verse 14, we saw that because of Saul's disobedience, his kingdom would not endure, and another was going to be chosen, which meant that that is cutting off Saul's line from the throne. Saul had not been removed as king, but his line had been cut off. So as we read of Jonathan, we should read with a sense of kind of sorrow because of no fault of his own, he's never going to be king. And he's so endearing because he never really seems to mind. He's not grasping for that. He doesn't seem to grasp the kingship. He's not looking for authority or power. And that just makes us kind of love him even more. Um, One person, Dale Ralph Davis, the way he describes Jonathan, he says, For Jonathan then, the kingdom was not his to seize, not his to rule, but his to serve. Maybe a tragic life isn't tragic if it's lived in fidelity to what Christ asks of us and the circumstances he gives us. And I think Jonathan embodies that beautifully because externally from the outside, it seems like his life is this tragedy that he's never going to get to be the king when he's so clearly worthy of it. But for Jonathan, the way that we see him portrayed in this book, he is simply living in obedience, the life that Christ has called him to live with the circumstances that God has given him. And he does it faithfully. And so Jonathan is pretty great. (laughs) So then we see that even though God had given them victory over the Philistines, it just wasn't enough for Saul. So let's contrast verse 23 with verse 24. And I'm going to read this out of the New American Standard Version in case you're reading with the one that's in the, um, the booklet. But I just really like certain little things about the wording here. So we see in verse 23, it says, so the Lord delivered Israel that day. Okay. So in this battle, we see the Lord delivered Israel that day. And then verse 24, Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Okay, so this is a really important contrast. Don't miss this one. God brings a victory. It says God delivered Israel that day. That should be a celebration, right? But the very next words are, The men of Israel were hard-pressed. So in other words, Saul's leadership took the joy out of this victory, too, and he turned what should have been a relief for Israel into a hardship. And why? He wanted to continue to pursue the enemies, not for the good or the protection of Israel, but because we want, he wanted to avenge himself against his enemies. So he wasn't fighting for Israel at this point. He was fighting for himself, and he did it in a way that caused his men to suffer. So we're starting to see this pattern start to emerge that when God brings about good and God brings about victory, Saul kind of undoes the victory in some way and somehow leads his men back into hardship, sometimes being worse off than they were before. So let's look at this oath that he took and where did it get him and his men. So first his son Jonathan 
doesn't know about the oath. So Jonathan comes along after fighting really hard all day. He's probably starving and exhausted, just like all the other people. He does not know about this oath that his father just made. So he eats some honey, and his eyes are brightened. But then he learns of the oath, and he plainly expresses this was a foolish oath for his father to make. And then they finally stop. It's nighttime, so they're allowed to eat again. And the men are so exhausted, and they're so hungry that they start killing sheep and cattle and eating them right there on the spot with the blood. And that was a big no-no in God's law. So not only did this oath, you know, unwittingly cause his own tall son to break the oath, but it causes the people to sin in an even greater way once the oath finally ends and they're able to eat. They start eating in a very unclean way. So Saul scrambles to make it right by making an altar so they can eat the meat in the proper manner. And then he asks the Lord if he should continue to pursue the Philistines, which, surprise, surprise, God doesn't answer because this wasn't really a fight he should have been having at this point in the first place. But Saul assumes that the, the fact that God didn't answer is because somebody must have broken the oath. And somebody did break the oath. So Saul, he makes this statement that whoever broke this oath, I'm going to make sure that they, are, they, they will be killed, even if it's my own son. Sure enough, it was his own son. So when he finds this out, he realizes, well, now I have to kill my own son. But then the people talk him out of it. So, like, I want you to understand what's happening here. The people have to talk the king out of killing his own son, who had just brought about a huge victory over their enemies. Okay, I'm going to read verse 45. It says, the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, thou shalt no one, not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. So guys, this is like a huge mess. Saul is portrayed in such a bad light in so many ways because he has somehow turned their victory over the Philistines into a time that they're hard-pressed and they're exhausted and they're starving. And he does this because he made a rash vow for completely selfish reasons. And then his son, who we've established as a very strong and competent leader, tells us that it was a bad vow to make. So if we're still questioning was this vow good or bad, the author has taken great care to let us know that Jonathan is a trustworthy worthy source here. And Jonathan himself said that this was not a good vow. Saul's vow causes people to commit these great sins, and it also puts himself in a position where, in order to be faithful to the vow, he was going to have to kill his own son. And then the people who he's supposed to be leading have to talk him out of it, which really there's no good situation at this point because to break his vow would show a huge disregard for God's law, which was really bad for the king to do. But to keep it would mean the death of the person who was least deserving of death at that point in the story. So Saul created an absolute mess. And then it's funny because all of a sudden we have this little thing, this little blurb where we finish the story with this little picture that Saul's leadership wasn't always bad, okay? I, I love that we get just these couple of verses here that tells us that, oh, and by the way, he fought many battles valiantly. So there was some good that came from his reign, but notice, notice what all of the text gives us the details of. Like, sure, there were battles that he fought valiantly. God did work through him despite his flaws, but those good battles, his valiant fights, aren't what he's remembered for in the text. We are, about to, we are reading all about the things that caused his downfall, okay? Um, and so we're about to see that it doesn't end. Like, he were, he, his blunders are not finished yet. So chapter 15, let's move on. We're going to see in this chapter that once again, Saul is going to be disobedient to what God has told him to do through Samuel. 
Um, Sam, God has told him, hey, I want you to go and wipe out the Amalekites. The Amalekites were this kind of nomadic group that when the people were, when Israel was crossing into the promised land, the Amalekites had attacked them. And so God is wanting to enact judgment on the Amalekites. And he is choosing to enact his judgment using Israel, okay? So this is a war that is not necessarily like for Israel. This is a war initiated by God for God's purposes. Um, this is kind of what goes in the category when you start like studying a lot about the wars in the Old Testament. There's a category kind of considered the holy, like a holy war. This is something that doesn't happen today, and it caused a lot of problems throughout history. This whole idea of a holy war, but there's very there's a few wars throughout the Old Testament that most commentators would describe as a holy war because it's God enacting His judgment, but using like His people to do it. So this is a special category of war. This is not like the same as like when he is just wanting his people to go into the promised land, okay? So when there's these specific kinds of wars, there's specific rules where they're not supposed to take any spoil. They're not supposed to keep any of the spoil for themselves like they would in a regular war. And this is very, very important because this war wasn't really about Israel. And so Saul, he goes and he does defeat them. He does go to these people like God tells him to, but he doesn't obey fully, because he lets the king live, and then he lets the people keep all the livestock as spoil. And those were really, really big no-nos for this type of war. So he mostly obeys, but he doesn't fully obey. And if you'll notice, when does he obey and when does he disobey? Well, he disobeys when it benefits himself in some way. We read in verse 9 that they only destroyed the worthless things, and they kept everything that was good. So it seems like they saw obedience as something that was only necessary when it was favorable to them. But that full obedience was just an option if it was going to infringe on their personal gain. And so it, was it benefited Saul to disobey because he still wanted the favor of the people. So when the people are saying, we want to keep these choice livestock, all these, these, you know, the livestock that are good and not worthless, Saul wants their favor, so he lets them do it because he cares more about the favor of the people than obeying what God has done. So obedience was an option if it infringed on his personal gain or desire. Do we ever do that? Do we ever see obedience as something that we are willing to do when it benefits us in some way? But when obedience requires sacrifice or requires us to lose something, we start to make excuses and maybe aren't as willing to obey fully. We should learn from, from Saul because we're not that much different all the time. So Samuel comes, he sees Saul has not obeyed. He comes, he's like, what's this bleeding that I hear? Um, and not surprisingly, Saul comes back to him and he blames everybody else. Like Saul, in good Saul fashion, he's like, well, you know, I obeyed, but the people took all these things. It wasn't me. And, you know, like we weren't taking it for ourselves. We took it so we could sacrifice to the Lord. And, you know, just kind of making it seem more holy and justified than it actually was. And, of course, Samuel sees through it, and he rebukes him. And at this point, the punishment is a little more harsh because last time he was told that your line will not endure, but this time he says the Lord has rejected you from being king. So no longer is it just his line that is going to get cut off from being the king, but the Lord has rejected Saul from being king. And we learn a lot about what repentance is not by how Saul reacts. Now, earlier in the book, we saw Samuel had led Israel to repentance, and they were to turn away from those false idols to turn their eyes to God. 
Now here, Saul is begging Samuel to pardon his sin. And first he's like, I want to come and worship the Lord with you. So it seems like, okay, his eyes are turning to the Lord. This is a good thing. But then we see that when Samuel kind of withholds at first, we kind of see his true intention and his true heart coming out. We see that it's not his heart that's turned to the Lord, but its heart is turned to his own reputation still. Because in verse 30, Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So he's wanting to be able to return, to bow before the Lord your God, really for the purpose of the people seeing that he is still in good standing, that he's still in good favor. He wants to be honored before the elders and before his people. So Saul was primarily concerned with the favor of the people and with his own reputation. He wanted to keep his status as king. He wasn't necessarily so concerned with the loss of God's presence in his life. So it's almost like the favor of the Lord was kind of a means to an end for him. It was how he kept the favor of the people or his own reputation. And so we'll see that this does not end in a pretty way. (laughs) We see this chapter ending with a very bloody picture of Samuel finishing what Saul was supposed to have done. So Samuel then kills the king, and guys, this scene is so graphic and so disturbing, and it's, it's supposed to be, because this was not something that Samuel was supposed to do. This might have been the first time that Samuel had to kill somebody, I think one of the commentators made that point. And it gives this graphic picture of death to drive the point that, first of all, Samuel cared more about obedience to the Lord, even if it meant having to do something like that to make his point. But it also is just kind of like showing us this tragedy, not just in this horrible dismemberment, but in the total loss that Saul has just experienced because the Lord has taken his kingship. He's removed Samuel, God's mouthpiece, from Saul's presence. And then the text tells us Samuel didn't see Saul again until the day of his death. So that means from this point on, Saul is moving forward without God's direction and guidance. He does not have God's direction and guidance anymore. So this visual, graphic, like, killing that we see is supposed to give us that sinking feeling in our gut to to show the heaviness of what has really happened with Saul's fall. So these three pictures, they give us a pretty bleak picture of Saul's downfall. Before we move on, I want to take another second to do another contrast, okay? Up to the point that Saul was anointed, God had been Israel's king. So I'm going to contrast God's leadership with Saul's leadership for a minute here. When God was their king, we saw that God fought their battles, and sometimes like all by himself. But when Saul is their king, in these chapters, we see that a lot of times his son Jonathan was the one kind of leading out and fighting in the battles. When God is the king, we see time and time again, Israel is given courage. But with Saul as the king, they're trembling and they're afraid and they're hiding in caves. God as a king always follows through with what he said that he's going to do. And he can really be trusted. We know that God is going to do. He proved that. But we can't say the same for Saul. And finally, God works always for the good of Israel. Even in their defeats, we saw in the past week that the defeats are even still for their good to get them to turn back to him. He is always working for the good of Israel. He is giving them protection and security and discipline when necessary. But Saul is working for the good of himself, even at the expense of his people. We've talked a lot in the past several weeks about how we also look to things other than God, just like Israel did. We see in Saul a very detailed picture about how these lesser things 
fail to deliver the way that God can deliver. So I want you to take a second and think about what about the lesser kings in your life? Those things that you turn to for purpose, for direction, for guidance, or for whatever it is. Have you ever taken the time to contrast them and hold them up to see how they compare to God? Can those lesser things come through for us the way that God has proven that he can? Are they truly for our good the way that God is for our good? So our lesser kings are more subtle than Israel asking for a king like Saul. But if we examine our hearts really closely, we're going to see that they're there just the same. They just take a different form. And we can get so much insight when we hold those lesser things that we tend to turn to side by side with God and ask that question. Can it, can, can it deliver the way that God can? All right, we have worked through some depressing chapters here in seeing Saul's downfall. So now let's take a look at some hope that follows. We're going to take a turn for the better here, guys. So if you're feeling depressed, it's going to get better. Saul may have made a mess of his kingship, but God had another king who would be able to do what Saul could not. So we start chapter 16 with the Lord once again instructing Samuel on who to anoint as the next king. We see all throughout the Bible that God often chooses the unlikely and judges almost every single judge. I think every single judge had something about them that made them an unlikely choice um, to be a judge. And so this is kind of following in that form. It's no surprise that David has several older brothers, um, but God chooses David the youngest, which was such an unlikely choice that he wasn't even present at this whole thing. Like he was out tending the sheep. Like it was such a surprise to his family that he would even be considered. So it doesn't seem that significant to us in our culture for the youngest to be chosen, but in that culture, it would definitely have gone against cultural norms at the time. But God reminds us in the text that while we tend to look at external appearance, um, he looks at the heart. So Saul's completely unaware of what's happening here, and Samuel anoints David in front of his brothers. And we read that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. We also see that for Saul, the spirit had departed. And right away after this, we start to see that God is at work. He's orchestrating some events to bring David where he wants him to be. Because when the spirit leaves Saul, an evil spirit takes its place and it begins to terrorize him. Now, this isn't necessarily like a punishment from God, although it might be, but the text doesn't really say that it is. But I think that really what this is, is it's a way that God brings David into the position that he wanted him. So he brings David through this, not just into the presence of Saul, but he kind of brings him in a way that makes him indispensable to Saul. Because what happens is Saul becomes terrorized by this evil spirit, and one of his servants suggests, hey, let's find a skillful musician to play, and whenever this, this evil spirit is terrorizing you, he'll play the harp, and then you'll be well. And then another servant says, oh, I know of a man who's a skilled warrior and a skilled musician, and he's handsome, and the Lord is with him. So this man is David. So they bring David into this into the court and david whenever he plays the harp the evil spirit leaves saul and because of this saul grows to love david greatly so we see here that god is using this situation with saul which is such a strange and hard under, to understand situation but he uses that to bring david into the position that david needed to be in to eventually become the next king now, before we move on to talk about one of the most famous stories in the Bible, I want you to stop and notice a few things that just in his introduction, the author is already showing us about David. Because we are already seeing some big foreshadows of Jesus from like the moment that he's introduced. 
we learn immediately that he's a shepherd. And in the New Testament, we see that Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. We also see in this passage that um, the Spirit of God comes mightily upon David from that day forward. So it's not just like for a specific time, for a specific reason, like some of these other instances, but it comes on him from that day forward, much like we see in the New Testament the Spirit come down upon Jesus. And finally, we see David is able to cast out a demon, and that's a pretty big deal. Um, But we also see all throughout the New Testament that Jesus casts out demons as well. So nobody really even knows, hardly anybody knows that David is going to be the king at this point. Um, But he's already pointing to Jesus in so many ways. And even Saul loves him and approves of him. Like even the rejected king finds comfort in the presence of the king who's going to replace him. He doesn't know that, but we kind of just see the sufficiency of David to meet even the needs of the rejected king. Which brings us to chapter 17 the famous story of David and Goliath that most people are familiar with, whether you grew up in church or not. This is arguably one of the most famous stories of the Bible. So I'm going to review the story really quick before we unpack it a little bit. The Philistines had gathered their army once again. They just cannot seem to get rid of these Philistines. And they're on one side of a valley, and Israel's on the other. So there's this valley. They're kind of each on like a mountain on either side of the valley. And the Philistines have this mighty warrior named Goliath. He's super tall. He's strong. He's heavily armed. He's usually depicted as a giant. I think one person said he's about nine feet tall. Now, you would expect Saul to step up to the challenge because he was described earlier in the book as being like a full head and shoulders taller than anybody else. So if anybody could be a match for Goliath, you would think that it would be Saul, their new king, who was taller than everybody else. But once again, we don't see Saul taking any action. He's not doing anything. He's not leading. He's not defending. He's not protecting his people. And the Philistines are taunting Israel. They're telling them to send your best warrior to take on Goliath. So what they're saying is they want Israel to send one man to fight on behalf of them all, which again points to Christ. And if they lose, they are to become their servants. And nobody's up for the challenge. That is until David hears about it, because he comes to the battle to bring some food for his brothers and for their commander. And he hears what's happening, and immediately he's like, Who's this guy? Like, who's this guy who thinks he can defy the living God? So he doesn't see him as a scary threat, but as somebody who is no match for his God. This is the first time that David speaks. We've, lear- we've heard about David in the other chapter, but this is the first time David opens his mouth, and he's already speaking very strong theology. So he volunteers himself to go out against Goliath, and Saul tries to dress him in his kingly armor, but David just kind of fears, feels that it's going to hinder him more than help him. So he doesn't face Goliath not dressed as a warrior or a king, but as a humble shepherd with a sling and a stone, which makes me think a lot about how Jesus didn't come in as a warrior or what an earthly king would be pictured like, but he came in riding on a donkey, not how Israel expected. And we all know what happens next. Goliath meets David on the battlefield, and this giant's coming towards him, and David uses the sling to fling this rock at him, and it hits him in the forehead and strikes him down. But then we don't always read that second part. It says that David then takes the head of Goliath and delivers it to Saul. And I can't help but think about Jesus yet again, who we are told in Genesis Genesis is going to crush the head of the serpent. And in doing all of this, David saves his people from becoming slaves to the Philistines, just as Jesus saves all of us from being slaves to sin and death. So David defeating Goliath is so much more than David showing that he had faith in God and therefore had strength to defeat a giant. David defeating Goliath is a picture 
of what was to come one day when Satan would I mean when Jesus would come and beat Satan sin and death. When we contrast moving on contrasting David to Saul, we see another picture of how Saul this lesser king falls short. Saul was concerned with his own glory and David was concerned with God's glory and with pointing people back to God. Saul faced a huge Philistine army with only 600 men and didn't really have any regard for God's guidance. David, on the other hand, faced a giant all by himself based on the trust that God was with him and could defeat anyone. Saul sat under the pomegranate tree, even though he was armed with an actual sword while all of his men had farming tools. David took action, even though he only had a sling and a stone and didn't even have any armor on him. Saul's battles were often won by others, yet he still claimed the victory, while David fought his battle himself but gave God the victory. You guys, Saul doesn't hold a candle to David, just like our lesser kings don't hold a candle to Jesus Christ. So as we close, I want you to step back, and I want you to look at the whole story arc of these five chapters we just covered. Israel rejected God as their king, and they asked for a lesser king who was not able to deliver or compare to God. Just like we reject God and continue to turn to the things of this world for our needs and desires. Because we too turn to things that can't compare to what God offers us. Israel's lesser king fell utterly short and failed them, just like our lesser kings do. But God and his goodness and love does not let them wallow, not leave them to wallow under the rule of their lesser king. He gives them David, a better king, a man after his own heart who led them according to God's guidance and care. Just like God and his goodness and love doesn't leave us to wallow when our lesser kings fail us. He gave us Jesus, providing a way for us to be back under God's guidance and care once again. David was one humble man who defeated the unbeatable giant, saving his people from becoming slaves. Jesus was one man who defeated the bigger, unbeatable giant of sin and death, saving all who put their faith and trust in him from being slaves to our sin. Guys, do you see it? Like, this isn't just a story of Saul and David, some kings. This is the gospel story. This whole five chapters, it's a gospel story. It's not just Israel's story. It's our story, too. So, sure, we can look at these examples of Saul and David and look at what we should be like or shouldn't be like. Yeah, we can look to David and think, oh, yes, these are, this is an example for me to follow. We can do that, and we should do that. But that is a secondary application of this text because we have to remember that primarily in this story, that we are Israel. We're not Saul or David, okay? So if we want to know who we should be identifying with, it's Israel. And if you think about it, who's the model Israelite in these chapters? I kind of think it's Jonathan. Jonathan is basically the perfect model Israelite. He's not fighting for power. He's not trying to make a name for himself. He's pointing out the folly of that lesser king. And eventually, he devotes himself to the coming better King David. And we're going to see a lot of this in these later chapters, that he is utterly and completely devoted to David, just as we should be utterly and completely devoted to Christ. Even though Saul was his father, he didn't fall for the notion that Saul was any better than God. And then when David comes in the picture, he serves him wholeheartedly with no selfish ambition. So we are Israel in this story, and nobody is a better model citizen than Jonathan. So we should keep that in mind as we go through the following weeks. So the question for us to think through first and foremost is which king are we serving in our story? 
Are we still rejecting God by looking to these lesser kings? Are we still looking to the things of the world to satisfy us and to meet our needs and desires or for our comfort and for our security? Or have we seen that those things just don't compare to the one true king? Have we turned to Jesus who has conquered the Goliath of sin and death and who has saved us from being slaves to our sin? Are we devoted to Jesus with the same passion and devoted devotion that we're going to see Jonathan is devoted to David in the coming weeks? Like, are we trusting that through Jesus, God is enough to satisfy our needs and desires and that he gives us comfort and security? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all of the ways throughout the entire, the entire Bible that you show us Jesus and that you show us who you are and what you have done for us. God, I pray that as we study and as we discuss that we would see your gospel in this story, that we would see how this plays out in our own lives, that we would be able to identify those lesser kings in our own life and that we would be able to just turn aside from them and just turn our gaze back to you, that we would see that they fail to measure up to what only you can offer us and that we would then turn to Jesus in order to be back into your guidance and protection and care. God, I pray that if there's anybody in here who has never turned to Jesus, that that you would use this moment to draw them to yourself right now, Lord. And I pray that um, we would all leave here changed in some way and that you would let our time discussing this um, just drive home whatever it is that you're teaching each of us individually even further. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So go ahead and head to your discussion groups and um, 